0: Hey there, Freedom Fighters. I'm so excited to do this interview. I'm so excited to do this interview that literally before going to bed last night, I messaged today's guest and I said, I had a last minute change with one of my other guests. Can you jump in and do this interview? And he said, sure. And the reason I'm excited about it is because the way that today's guest, Andrew Monday, got my attention, he... he st- he started the email with an F bomb and then he said, Sorry for the bad word. And then he just gave me a list of things that he wanted to talk about. He's a Mixer G fan, so he knew that I dig this. He goes, I was employee number one at DoorDash. Ask me anything, really. I'll I'll tell you. And so I did. I I emailed him back and I said, How much like, is your equity worth a DoorDash? And he told me, and I'll see if he wants to tell us here in in the interview now that's recording. He talked about uh, whether you could get rich from a bootstrap VC-backed uh, employee company, as an employee in one of those companies. He started telling me about... Um, well, a lot of different things. And basically what I wanted to know was, can we come here and tell the story of what happened at DoorDash and what he's trying to do with local kitchens? And I'm happy that he's here to talk about it. And we can do it thanks to two phenomenal sponsors. The first, if you're paying your employees, you should use a company that Andrew told me he doesn't use. He uses a competitor. Um, I'm going to be switching over to Gusto and we'll talk about why I'm going to pay my people with Gusto and why I think you should too. And the second is HostGator. If you want a website hosted, do what I do. Go to HostGator.com Mixergy. First of all, Andrew, good to have you here. Great to be here. Do you feel comfortable saying what your equity in DoorDash is?
1: Th- this is such a fun question. So I think um, these are the best questions in life and people sometimes don't want to answer it due to like safety. I don't like fully get that thing. Um, so I-, I think a range, you know, I would say tens of millions. Um, and I think people can do the math. Look, First employee, when I joined, my equity was at 075 um the company was valued at 12 million dollars now it's valued at like 60 billion so it's funny when people are like what did he make it's like Mm -hmm. you could do some math and like get pretty close like were you diluted a lot
0: as they took on more you did
1: you were yeah every round like think of the founders who Mm -hmm. each started with 25 percent and now probably own two percent um i'm sure that's all public
0: okay and the number that you told me in private, I don't think I could deduce it based on what you've said here, but was that an accurate number? Yeah. Okay. So tens of millions, I'm not going to betray your private your your trust, but I, I got a sense that it's pretty substantial. I want to know why you were at DoorDash. What was there? But first, let me understand what Local Kitchens is, this new company. What is it?
1: Yeah. So we started this company for uh, a couple of reasons. One was to help merchants and restaurant brands expand. We met all these restaurants that have been around for 10 years, had great businesses, and they weren't doing the ghost kitchen thing. And we were really curious about that. You know, isn't that supposed to make it easier for you to expand? The ghost kitchen thing is, you know, they give you a space to operate and that's pretty much it. And so their big headache was actually operating the kitchen, doing all the work, hiring the GMs and the employees and training and all that stuff. So we figured, Hey, well, you know, what if we did that? We signed our first brand, Proposition Chicken. Um, and then from there, we you know, have, have been going since and been around for, I think, a year and a half. Um, our big difference is really the storefront experience. So you can like walk in, you can mm. eat in there, delivery, pickup, all that stuff.
0: So Curry Up Now is one of the restaurants on your platform. I freaking yep. love Curry Up Now. It is Indian burritos. It's one of the things that made San Francisco great for me. And I loved every once in a while after living there for uh, maybe a few years, five years or so, every once in a while I start to see Apple reference curry up now at their presentation and other places. And I realized, oh, yeah, this is like if they love it enough to talk about it, I'm happy uh, that this company should grow. I want to see them all over the world. If they were to go with a standard ghost kitchen, a ghost kitchen would say, we have facilities here. Here's everything you need to make your, your Indian burritos and when somebody orders it from Grubhub or Uber Eats, you just bring it up to the part of the space where they'll pick it up, and they'll pick it up and deliver it. But it's up to you to have your own chef, your own people, your own food, everything delivered there. You're just renting space, kind of like a WeWork model.
1: Yep, they're they're a landlord, you know. Okay, Whereas and local we kitchen does was licensing. Yeah. We essentially license Curry Up, and so um, it's faster like a, for them.
0: Like a franchisee, essentially, where you've got a set. Yes, that's what it is. It's similar. Okay, got it. And then, in addition, you want people to be able to walk into the restaurant and say, "I'm here for curry up now, but while I'm here, you know what? The melt, another San Francisco uh, new institution, looks good. I'm going to buy one of those for my wife, or grilled totally. cheese for the kids. The, That's the you idea. Know, we
1: see, we see, probably over sixty five percent of orders are mix and match. Kids want grilled cheese. You know, someone wants a salad. Someone wants a burger. Um, if you can't really execute that unless they're all kind of in the same roof.
0: Okay. All right. That's a creative idea. Before we get into that, let's go back into how you ended up at DoorDash. What were you doing just before?
1: Yeah. So I, if you back all the way up after college, didn't go to a great school, was at a pretty crappy public company for three years. It was literally like the movie office space, like multiple bosses. Um, and I looked into the future and just thought this, there's no way this is like the next 30 years. So being in San Francisco, you know, I go into startups. Um, The first two were pretty shitty. Um, I was not burned out, but I was like, man, this wasn't what I thought it would be. I had this offer from LinkedIn for like 110 k And at that time, I thought six figures was just filthy rich, you know. Um, But I really like I pictured walking around these offices, you know, in like with people wearing nicer clothes. And I just I couldn't do it, you know. So a good I mean, you couldn't was be at... around
0: people who are wearing khakis, for example, at a LinkedIn <laughs> office.
1: That's what it was. Pleated pants. It's just I can't. Yeah, I, I, I can't do it. OK. Um, so, you know, a good friend was at Stanford GSB um, with, with Tony, founder and CEO of, of DoorDash. And he made an intro and they were just applying to YC. And they were pretty all in. They're living mm-hmm. in this house. Tony's living there with his wife they're living and working in this house and the energy is just like totally insane okay and um, i feel like from the first day i felt like i got to be a part of it and then it was this kind of four month journey of basically like begging them to let me join this company that wasn't even really a company seriously um, so it, there were because th- it of was the rocky. energy they were so committed and so smart and just grinding so hard
0: how could you um, tell, give me an example of what you saw back then. And by the way, the more you move, I think your mic on your headset is moving against your collar. So let's watch that. But give me an example of oh, what yeah. you saw back then from them.
1: Yeah. You know, the one thing I re- I remember once, um, I, you know, we would interview after work at like nine, nine or 10 PM or whatever. So I'd go to the house. Um, and I remember Tony's wife coming down, it's downstairs and just being like, Tony, like the, like the night's over. Like it's, time to go to bed. (laughs) Um, and I just thought, man, like this is wild. Like these guys are so all in on this, you know, and it wasn't about money or ego or any of that stuff. It's just like, can we do this?
0: So they weren't even called, I think Doordash at the time that you were talking to them, right?
1: It was was... how auto delivery, you know, it was PDF menus. Um, and at that time, You know, everyone was like, you shouldn't deliver food because, like, it's too hard and it's perishable. Mm -hmm. And there's like 30 companies trying to do this and all that stuff. And for me, you know, I had a super rough time in school and tons of teachers that, um, you know, didn't believe in me and all that kind of stuff. And so I like, I always live to prove people wrong. You know, the more someone says, don't do it, um, the more I get become addicted. And it's just, I'm going to do it. That's just the bottom line.
0: You went to Regis University. What's Regis University? (laughs)
1: It's a small Jesuit school in um, Denver. Okay. Were you like super fun. Catholic?
0: Because I think you even went to a Catholic uh, high school, right?
1: A Jesuit high school. Yeah, they're both Jesuit. Um, no, I mean, I grew up Catholic. Um, my mom's quite Catholic, but um, I don't, I don't have too strong of beliefs either way.
0: Okay. So it wasn't, it wasn't for the academics. It wasn't because you were, was were you especially passionate about Spanish? Is that why you went there to study Spanish? <laughs>
1: No, no, I played soccer. So, okay. you know, my options were basically walk on at a D1 school and like never touch the field or, you know, go D2 and like probably get some playing time by, you know, junior year or something like that. And, you know, thank God I had enough humility to go D2. Cause when you're 17, you still think you're like pretty good. Um, but it was a good experience from that standpoint.
0: All right. So even before they were called DoorDash, your title there was operations before it became. Director of operations, you were just manager of operations. You were basically the operations guy. What does that even mean in a company that small?
1: Yeah, I mean, wh- one thing I think I have some pride around is my title was director of operations um, the entire time I was there. And I-, I think titles are incredibly insignificant. And, you know, Tony and I had zero conversations about my title. And as you can imagine, my responsibilities changed dramatically. When I started, I was onboarding drivers. So, I was calling probably 50 to 80 drivers a day, interviewing them, bringing them to the house, doing two to three orientations a day, seven days a week. Um, And, you know, that was the burning problem was we have tons of demand and we don't have enough drivers. And then incentivizing them, calling them. I probably had every single driver's number in my phone, you know, um, teaching them how to deliver, doing it side by side, like, you know, the first process we're doing, we're doing like two hour interviews with each driver like in person
0: <laughs> why do you need two hours to interview someone for uh, delivering you food you don't yeah you don't it was just that you didn't know what to do is. or maybe you were hanging out with them a little too much <laughs> no we the conversation just conversation linger
1: we just no no i mean there was some purpose we wanted it to go really well and we're asking you know what do you do in this situation what do you do if you're late what do you do if you can't find parking um you know what if the customer doesn't answer the door like all this stuff because there's no product right now. The product tells you what to do in all these scenarios. So when you have extreme discretion, you need to figure out, you know, well, what's what's the decision making like for these people?
0: So right now, Andrew, I'm getting the likability part of you, like in this conversation, it comes through so well. What I want to see is the operations methodology that you have when when all these people are coming in and you don't know what to ask and what the structure is. How does Andrew, Andrew Monday, am I pronouncing your name right? Monday, right? Yep. yep. Okay. With a, it with a U. How does Andrew Monday organize a process to help make each one of these new onboarding experiences better and to systemize something that could go nationwide and beyond?
1: Yeah. You're, you're just looking at, at each piece on its own. So initially there's no checklist, right? And you have to get their driver's license and insurance and all this stuff then you create a, a paper checklist, but now you have all this paper and then you make it digital, you know? And then I remember a night where I would manually pay pay drivers through bill pay through Silicon Valley bank bill pay. And I didn't set this spreadsheet up, but someone set up, um, kind of a find if spreadsheet by first name. So once there were two Andrews, you know, they were getting paid twice. Um, so, I talked to this engineer. I'm like, hey, you know, I, I pay them weekly every Sunday night. I'm up till 2, 3 a.m. Um, and obviously we make errors because we're human. You know, do you think you can automate this? So it's a combination of operational processes and then also working with engineering. One thing that was huge at DoorDash, we didn't have product managers for the first like year or so.
0: What else did you do to help systemize the company to to build the operations?
1: You know, hiring was a huge deal, right? Hiring, I think, is kind of slept on. And so we had a very, um, structured hiring process. I hadn't really hired that much before then, but I really gravitated towards it. So, you know, setting up an ATS, um, setting up really structured interviews, like demanding feedback. So if you interview and you don't send your feedback on that candidate within 24 hours, you know, I'm kicking you off the panel. Um, we were very, very good and structured at that process. And, um, I do think that was one of the biggest differences between us and competitors is our our people were, you know, quite elite. You're basically
0: creating like a workable software. I guess that's one of these like Kanban board like experiences where multiple people in the company could come together and talk about each hire. You built that for yourselves.
1: Well, so we used, um, we used Greenhouse. So there's, you know, Greenhouse and Lever, two Mm -hmm. most well-known ATSs. and then really formatting it to your needs. So we have this criteria of like eight categories, which is, you know, data driven, relentless, all the things that we care about a lot. Um, and measuring people on those dimensions.
0: As the company changed in the first years that you were there for what, four years, right? Yep. As the company changed in those four years, how did your role change?
1: It was, yeah, pretty dramatically. You know, at one point I was running legal, um, which I did for two years, you know, and then we're getting, um, we're getting some nasty letters from people. And it's like, um, I, I don't really think we want me in court, right? I think we want like a general counsel. And then you figure out, you know, well, what's a general counsel? What do they do? How much do you pay them? All that kind of stuff. So I really knew that it was like my moment and my opportunity. And I was just like grabbing, you know, becoming an expert quickly. You know, I was emailing general counsel at Lyft and getting tips from that person on ah. how I can fight this stuff. I, I remember I went to a a meeting at Uber with, cause you know, all of these independent contractor companies are working on the legislation stuff together. Mm-hmm. And I go to this meeting and it's like the GC of like caviar, Uber, you know, Lyft, TaskRabbit, all this stuff. And I'm like the only non GC there, you know? And I'm like, kind of joking. I'm like, Oh, you guys all have like law degrees. Like you don't need a law degree to do this. <laughs> 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 um, but it was, I mean, those meetings were obvious that I'm like, it's inappropriate for me to be doing this. You know, I'm not, I, I just don't know enough about what's going on here. Um, so but
0: your hustle was, you were enough of a hustler to say, I'm going to go and figure out who knows this. How do I get in the room with them? How did I get them to take my calls and email me back when I have a question, even if it's not in their interest to help me figure this out right now, it's in their interest to build a relationship
1: with me. Totally. And I think what helped a lot was the profile of the company, Y Combinator, you know, Sequoia right. led the series A, like, there's no doubt that people responded to me probably because of this profile.
0: Why did you care about it? Why did you care enough to want to get people food faster to their homes and beat other people who are going to do it anyway?
1: You know what I think I've learned in, in, in businesses, you can pick your passion, um, but it's so hard to find product market fit that like, if you're, what I'm really into is competing, you know? And so like when, when local food group came together, you know, I was basically like, look, I'll do any business. As long as we're not selling cigarettes, like I'll do whatever, because oftentimes people don't do businesses because they think, well, I don't love food delivery or whatever. And it's like, when you get in it, you'll love it. Right. When I got in it, I had a great affinity for the dashers, right? You meet these people, hardworking, multiple jobs. You want to grind. create opportunity for them you meet restaurant owners you meet customers um and so i think it's like you got to go where the opportunity is and then once for me once i'm in it it's to the death you know i i don't know the competitors but i want them to wish that they never got in this space you know and and for the time being like i hate them i hate their families i hate their teams like I, i just i don't want them to be any anywhere near you know our prize
0: Okay, I get that that I think we talk a lot about how much we love the product, how much we love the vision, but I get also that business is a sport and as long as it's not selling something you don't believe in or making something that you don't like at all, there's an excitement about being on a team with other people who are doing it, about growing the numbers themselves and I know for many people they say there's got to be more to life than seeing numbers grow on a spreadsheet, but it's fun. It's like saying to soccer players, there's got to be more to life than getting that ball in the goal and seeing another number up on the score. I I mean,
1: I guess I would ask, well, then what is it? Right. What is I'm open to hear, but I can tell you, we launched Palo Alto yesterday and the feeling of the entire team coming together, working over Thanksgiving, sacrificing, being a contributing member on a team. That's like achieving um, that. That's, That's unbeatable. You know, like I told you, I have plenty of money. I don't need to do this, but I I have this addiction to this feeling, which is, I mean, you've done it right. The feeling of when you finish a marathon, like that's a unique feeling in life. Um and and all of these wins in business. What about the the opposite of it? I'll give you an example.
0: Like even like because I care so much when things don't go well, I get so much more bummed than most people who aren't as invested. And that's true for everything. Like if I lose a chess now that I care about chess, I get so down and upset that I refuse to go to sleep until I win against somebody good. And I'll go on chess.com and I'll keep going. Do you feel that? And how do you
1: deal with that? So I, I will say I'm not I'm not like the Michael Jordan of like if if you want to people would say that MJ would like if you were flipping coins, you know, he'd be just like you described like he would be super pissed if he lost. I guess I'm like pretty good at compartmentalizing like I'm going to go as hard as possible And if I lose, then I'm going to move on. You know, I'm going to do something else. Um, So how do you keep your sense of self-worth
0: when you're investing so much of your time and so much of your identity into this thing and it's not working? Has that ever happened even to you?
1: Oh, yeah, of course. Yeah. I mean, I I I started a hair restoration company where I moved to New York, which is a place that I really despise living for many reasons. Um, I was in a long-distance relationship. It was some of the hardest four months of my life and it didn't work you know and i came home um, but now we launched local kitchens and so i think as long as you're alive like there's always another chance and, and you just keep going it's the kind of like die this trying is Polaris
0: thing. that you're talking about right the hair yep. restoration company and yep. so then why were you able to keep going why didn't you i think this was less than a year that you spent on it why did you give up at that point? And I know giving saying give up is a loaded word, but why no, did you say you look, know what? I, I've got totally to totally
1: gave up, totally gave up. Um, so take me through that low
0: point and then how you got through it, so that I could understand that part of you too.
1: It was pretty calculated, right? That was bootstrap, so it was like, look, I'm gonna spend, um, you know, six months on this and 50k of my own money, and these are the metrics that I want to see. And there's some flexibility. Maybe if I didn't hit all those metrics but I saw something telling me to keep going with, with that in particular, ultimately we felt like the female hair loss market was a better market um, because they're much more motivated and more price insensitive. And at that point I felt like, yeah, we should go exclusive on the female market. I don't have a ton to add on that. Um, and then I was going to kind of stay on like consulting, but me and my co-founder didn't agree on you know, what the percentage should be and Um, I also felt like it was a smaller business. And so it's like, I could go back to Silicon Valley and um, Mm. build something bigger. So um, you just keep going. I mean, just the opportunity to compete. Like I just, you know, if you're alive and you're breathing, like you can keep going. And I don't, there's, I guess I've had so much judgment in my life or what I thought was like judgment that now I've always been someone that dance to the beat of his own drum. You know, I think like the weirder and crazier you are, the more for me the more right I am. What's the, the more weirdest
0: th- thing about you? You don't seem that weird. You seem like a well-adjusted
1: person. Um maybe just from a commitment standpoint, like, you know, when I was at DoorDash, if you called me to do anything that wasn't DoorDash, go to dinner or whatever, it wasn't going to happen. Like I think I have a really extreme ability to focus. Um And, you know, I think general people would say that's kind of weird. Why do you want to work on Thanksgiving? Why do you want to work on Christmas Day? And not only feeling like, oh, it's not like, oh, I have to work. It's like I wake up and this is actually what I want to do most. Like I'm actively choosing this and I actually think working on Christmas is better than hanging out with you people who are like asking me to hang out. Like this is what I prefer to do.
0: I feel that. And I do understand how other people would be judging it and wondering if you're lying about your feelings <laughs> totally. towards it. Right. And then I also felt later on that I was giving up a part of my life. It wasn't about the holidays. It was I hadn't developed real close friendships because I'd spent so much
1: time working. I hadn't developed anything personal. Did you feel any of that at the end? of? Yeah. August, you, you know, one thing I think that's really hard about life is that it, it's mutually exclusive. Like you can't like be the best at something, like be a great family man. And then like, you know, build the best company that ever existed at the same mm. time. There's different stages. Yeah. Like you could look at, I mean, I don't know any specifics, but you could look at like Bezos. And once Amazon gets bigger, like he can have a family and he has more resources and stuff like that. But um, yeah, I mean, there are definitely times where there's maybe I'd rather ride my bike a little longer or something like that. But um I guess I know the prize and I'm like comfortable with the trade-off, but it's a it's a big big trade-off for sure. Like I'm What's 35 the at
0: the end of all this.
1: It's just that feeling, you know, like the the DoorDash IP, I'll tell you this, the the day the I, I would almost get emotional about this, and I did. Do it. The day the day DoorDash IPO'd. You know, I called my mom mm-hmm. and and I told her the amount of money that that it was worth, mm-hmm. and she just, she just lost it. Yeah. Started crying. And, you know, in that moment, you think about all the tough times in high school and getting suspended and, like, all this bullshit, and it's just this, like, this validation that, like, her and I, like, we did yeah. it, you know?
0: yeah. But all the times that she could have said this guy, he, I didn't get a good one.
1: Totally. Like she was, but she believed that there's a weird mother son bond, right? Where they, they, um, they believe in you to an unreasonable degree, you know? Um, and so you have one or two people that like stand by you. That's, um, that's it, you know? And so I think my mom's a huge motivator, you know, like working two jobs to send me to college and, um, sending me to the best schools and, um, all this kind of stuff. So what about your dad? We're not super close. They're, they're together. Um, but, you know, I think he, his dad was like kind of World War II. They don't, you don't talk about emotions and feelings and that kind of stuff. So, I mean, we hang out a, a decent amount, but it's mostly um, surface level.
0: I see. All right. I want to come back then and, and ask a little bit more about the behind the scenes stuff that someone who works for a vc back company would only find out afterwards but first um you were with gusto you switched to rippling i think that it's Class A to bring a, a competitor in an ad for for a sponsor but i want to give people a, a legitimate view of it i i've tried both i like both um what do you what's your take on the difference between the two of them
1: well first of all i, I used to always tell doordash pr all press is good press and they used to always tell me wrong <laughs> um but I, I think it's good. Um, we used Gusto, I think, at DoorDash when they were something, some name before that. I Honestly, I don't remember too close. We used Zen Rippling. Payroll, I think. Yeah, yeah, Zen Payroll. Yeah. Um, I don't remember too much. I mean, Gusto is like similar, I think, to Rippling. Super easy UI. Employees can understand it really well. It's like very clear what's going on. Honestly, we picked Rippling. I didn't really think about it too much at local kitchens. Like I had used it previously. So I think they're pretty similar. <laughs>
0: The reason that I'm going to Gusto now and switching to them is I just want a simpler experience that I don't want a payroll option that has everything in it that can distract me from the one or yeah. two things that matter. So I, I realize we're not sending computers to people and need to keep track of the computers. We're not adding all these extra plugins. We just want to make sure that everyone gets paid and that I don't have to get sucked into the app in order to pay them. And then at the end for 1099, that they're, or whatever the the, uh, tax paperwork is, that they just get it and it's organized and it's quick. And throughout, if there's an issue, I can get an HR uh, expert on the phone to talk to them. I think that the problem with competitors of Gusto is there isn't a, a human being on the phone that you could talk to. You have to sometimes beg in order to get to a human being, and when there's someone's payroll on the line, Andrew, I know that one of my issues is that even even when I was a kid, like money was really important to me, but not urgent in the sense that if that I always had a uh, I always had a bank account, I always had access to money, and so if I didn't get paid for some reason for a month, it wasn't an issue. But I know that for other people it is. And my sister used to have to tell me, look, if you owe me $100, you better give me the $100 when you owe it to me because that's a significant thing for me. If you and your brother, like me and my brother, if we owe each other $100 and we don't pay for a month, it'll get paid out. It's it's not an issue. Um, And so I – I want to be incredibly sensitive to people's never missing a payroll for even a small issue. And that's only going to happen if there's clarity on the software that makes it easy to hit send, that makes it easy for them to see what's there, that makes it easy for me to get a human being on the phone if for some reason one of the other bank accounts that we signed up for doesn't work. Anyway, all of that is to say, I like the simplicity of Gusto. I like how many people who I've interviewed have used it, and I recommend it. And if anyone out there wants to use it, you can try it for three months for free. Now's a good time of year to switch. Uh, The end of the year, beginning of a new year, you want to start fresh and you want to have a good experience for your people. If you go to gusto.com slash Mixergy, you'll get a great experience right from the beginning and they'll let you start with three months for free. But frankly, they're so inexpensive. That's another benefit. Not a huge expense. Software that works. Gusto.com slash Mixergy if you want to try it for free right now. And and by the way, it's also for if you have contractors, they'll work with them too. If you have only contractors, they'll work with them too. If you have all only W2, they'll work. All right. Let's go on to uh, the issues. You had friends who sold their shares. You told me for four hundred thousand dollars, they could have held on to it and made six million. I think there's some issues involved here with like when do you exercise stock, right? What uh, what type? Talk to me about some of the issues that you've learned now that you've been on the inside.
1: Yeah, I mean, I'll break this down. Like, it's not. It's actually hard to get rich off of startups for a lot of reasons. One, um, tax, right? So you get options from a company, and you need to exercise those options. So it's kind of messed up where if it's designed for the rich, um, there's one nuance of it that is important. When you leave a company, typically you have three months to exercise these options, right? And your bill could be tens of thousands of dollars, right? Mm-hmm. This is what's standard. Now at Local Kitchens, we made that a 10-year window because we said, so that look- means-
0: someone leaves they don't have to exercise their stock for the next 10 years that's right okay the
1: idea is that there will be a liquidity event within those 10 years and they can do what's called a same day transaction and they don't have to have this like upfront money right with same day
0: Um, transaction you exercise the option you get a stock and you get to sell it right away and you don't have to put up the money for it or pay taxes
1: you will pay taxes that that, that's the downside but but not before the downside is you'll pay ordinary income. Mm -hmm. So instead of cap gains, um, Mm -hmm. but it's like better than losing, you know, your equity. So, I mean, I had friends who left the company and just didn't exercise altogether because they either didn't have the money or maybe they didn't believe in the company at the time. And so they forfeited, you know, all of their equity and they basically just worked for a lower salary for a while. And then there's other people that are kind of handcuffed there because the other tricky thing is this AMT thing where the spread between your strike price. So when you get hired today, the strike price, let's say it's a dollar. And then in four years, the strike price is like a hundred dollars. The spread there, the difference, the $99, the government essentially taxes you on that. It's called like phantom tax, um, even though you don't have the money or the liquidity. And so Once that spread gets really, really big, people can't really exercise it because the tax bill is like so big.
0: And so, what do they do about that?
1: They stay until there's a liquidity event. Um, And companies have different perspectives that, you know, they don't want to do the 10 year exercise window. They want to do the three month because it kind of golden handcuffs people. Um, So, that's tricky. And then the last thing I would say is companies, when they get into the later stages, they'll do, um, what 's called like a buyback, so you know like stripe is a good example, right like Stripe was founded in two thousand and eight it 's now two thousand and twenty one Imagine you worked there when you were like twenty five and now you 're like thirty eight and you 're like i 'm going to be dead in like thirty forty years, and i don 't have any liquidity <laughs> from this company like this sucks um, and so they 'll do a buyback, you know the company will actually create a price like Doordash did this. Um, it's at a discount of like whatever the preferred is. And so at that time you could sell your DoorDash equity. And let's say the people who sold it for 400K, it was like, maybe that was more money than they ever thought they would have made anyways. Um, And then the pandemic comes and all this crazy stuff happens and DoorDash stock goes up and up and up. And they miss this like, you know, 20, 30X opportunity. My personal perspective is if you're joining a startup Swing for the fences, hold as long as you can, swing for the fences. Otherwise, go to a big company and get paid, you know, 500k to a million a year and build your wealth that way.
0: You're saying this is your one chance to go all in fully, go in all fully or else go take a different thing. Yeah. That's hard but because so much of your life and your finances is already tied up with the company just by being an employee, but being an employee, plus an, not a stockholder, but an option holder, it's a lot of risk for one company when some random thing can happen that has, that you have no connection to.
1: I mean, it, it, yeah, I mean, like I could speculate on DoorDash that if COVID doesn't happen and um, some other things that I think had a pr- probably a pretty big impact, maybe it's worth a lot less. Um for me personally though my life was designed around this right i lived in a studio mm-hmm. in san francisco for nine years my rent was 900 a month one time it got raised 25 like i didn't have kids i wasn't getting married i wasn't buying a house like i was completely optimized for this yeah. my whole goal w- when i read um snowball the warren buffett book and i read that his goal was to like retire by 35 I read this and like, I was 23 or 24. That was it for me. I was like, I'm going to do that. You know, that's, that makes a lot of sense, right? I don't want to be 60 years old trying to request time off from some bozo. (laughs) That's not my path, right? Yeah.
0: Yeah. And then why not, if you're doing that, do it for your own company? Why not? You're in San
1: Francisco. You're in the Bay. This is such a good question. And I've started companies and I've also worked at, you know, one of the fastest growing companies of all time, which by the way, I, again, I joined because these guys were working in a house and I thought it was cool. Not because I thought it was obvious that I would be rich. Um, you, you just need to join like a very successful company. I mean, I probably made more money at DoorDash than many founders, right? I'll give you a great stat. So at IPO, I think it was around 200 people at DoorDash cleared 10 mil. And like over a thousand people cleared 200, 200, 10 million, 200 people got more than 10. Wow. Okay. And like a thousand clear more than a thousand, I think, cleared um, like a million. And so, wow. so, imagine how many people cleared 50 million. You know, let's call yeah. it another 20, 30, 40, who knows. Um, so the point okay. is like, if you can be. A contributing member on a really strong team from a purely monetary perspective like you can make plenty of money right and if you found um and there's no product market fit when you start like it's probably a lot more v- variable right i've started what three companies now like, right i don't think i i just think that the anchor should never be well there's no should or shouldn't but for my life it's never been like how to make money like i wanted to be rich and i was planning to do that through basically investing long in like real estate and i thought i could do it by you know 35 or 40 or something like that i didn't necessarily plan on this big lucky thing that happened to me all right
0: then where'd you get the idea for local kitchens
1: so my co-founder john and, and, and jordan they really wanted to work in food and as i said you know, I was like, "Look, whatever it is, you guys are two of the most elite people I know. I want to work with you. Um, I'll do it." And then I've learned with starting companies, you really need to stack the deck. And so we, we have advantages in that we're the early DoorDash team. We're well known. We're well respected. We can attract capital. We know a lot more about the space. We're still super close to you know our, our DoorDash friends. Um, and so we just started looking at problems of merchants and then the expansion thing came along. And then, um, the thing we realized two things, one was the opportunity for multi-brand ordering. So, you know, ordering from the melt and C-SIG all in the same cart. Um, and then really the vertical integration thing. So if you go all the way back, you know, Grubhub started in like what, 2004, pretty incredible. They put menus online, but only 15% of restaurants deliver. And that was their thing. They work with restaurants that deliver, right? They don't have drivers or anything else. But that was, you know, incredible at the time. And then DoorDash comes along and says, what if we put everybody online? You know, literally everybody. They dramatically increased um, the, the availability of merchants that could deliver. And so we feel like, well, the next step is, what if you could put any food anywhere? Like, what if we could show up in, you know, some suburb of Austin and pick some Uh, cuisines that didn't exist and we could just put them there and it's more nuanced guest selection you know it's this idea that Bezos says that customers are like divinely discontent so like Grubhub started and they're like this is pretty sweet DoorDash started and they're like this is pretty sweet and so I think this could be the next kind of frontier of um you know food in the space all
0: right I get it I can see actually that they're just There's certain restaurants that don't exist in a place. Like I don't see Burmese food, for example, in Austin. As much as it's really good about having exotic and interesting food, some of the food that I had when I was in San Francisco, I really miss here. And you're saying, all right, why should we wait for someone with any Burmese experience to say, I want to move to Austin and open up a restaurant and know how to do it and figure out where it is? Why don't we just say we've seen that this type of person – likes it burmese food let's explore bringing burmese food and this is a brand that works
1: i see like that. what if we brought burma superstar to austin
0: yes that's what i was thinking of. that was, would be crazy i freaking love that yes do that please <laughs> um <laughs> oh man um my mouth is just watering thinking about it but then you see that there's already ghost kitchens right And you got Travis Kalanick, the guy behind Uber, who's super aggressive, jumping in. And he's saying, we don't need to have space where people can walk in. Why aren't you saying he's already figured out the next step of this? Let's let Burma superstar invest in in hiring people. They're going to know how to do it better than we could. Why not say this has already been done and I'm... Why are you not afraid to be in this space, I guess,
1: is the question. I mean, look, yeah, tra- Travis is super legit, right? From from my era of startups, he yeah. he was up there, right, with Bezos and, you know, anyone, right? One of the fastest yep. growing companies of all time. We always looked up to them. And then eventually at DoorDash, we, we competed with them, um, mm-hmm. which was exciting. I think, I don't know their strategy and everything about it. I think what they're missing, it seems to me their company was built from like a, kind of company first perspective, which is there's distressed real estate doing nothing. Let's scoop it up and build kitchens and we can let people cook in them. We are really from a guest first perspective, which same with DoorDash, it often leads the hardest road. Like at DoorDash, it's like, you're gonna acquire drivers, you're gonna acquire customers and you're gonna acquire merchants. It's like, you're doing too many things. It's gonna cost too much money. You're gonna fail, right? I do think there are lines, though, like we saw this with like Munchery is a really good example where they were basically DoorDash and they cooked food, you know, and to us that was like too much. They're doing too many things. We were doing a lot of things, but it was kind of acceptable. So our guest first perspective is, look, they want multi-brand ordering. They want food in the suburbs. They want to be able to pick up all these things. And that's kind of what we built it for. They're, they're pretty different companies, I think.
0: How'd you know that they wanted to pick up?
1: I think if you look at some other examples of like Domino's and and other companies and you can see just that their pickup rate is higher, sweet green in suburbs too, um, it becomes pretty obvious. And then a lot of what we learned from DoorDash that, you know, there's reasons you don't pick up in cities because there's no parking, people don't have cars, um, and it's much more like utility type eating. Whereas in the suburbs, you have kids, you put them in the car, you get out, you go in. Um, it's interesting, right? Like people who start startups in cities and maybe are less familiar with suburbs wouldn't see this as much, but this advantage of DoorDash where we went hard at suburbs, we watched everyone else burn tons of money in cities. Um, We just felt like it was a gold mine.
0: Did you test it in some way? I mean, this is a pretty big investment.
1: (laughs) Yeah, this is so funny. So we, we did. We, we basically said, we're going to run this experiment. I knew what would happen. I'm like, if we get any traction, like then all of a sudden we're just going to be running a company. So um, we started trying to sign merchants. We signed Proposition Chicken in San Francisco, which was crazy because it was just the three of us, three tech, tech guys, basically. They wanted to start within like a week. We were like, shit, we don't have a kitchen. So we're walking around Menlo Park. This is in the middle of the pandemic. We're asking kitchens, hey, do you guys have extra capacity? Would you want to make some extra money cooking someone else's food? The second wow. place that we go to, this guy is like, yeah, let's do it. When do we start? We're kind of like, you know, when you're pitching something, but you don't really expect a positive response. Yeah. And you're, you're kind of expecting them to say no, and you'll just keep walking. And so he's like, yeah, when do we start? And we're like, um, in like three days. So we go to Proposition Chicken, I bring a video camera, we video each dish getting made, we like document okay. it all, and then we go to this kitchen in Palo Alto. It's a um, It's a Singaporean restaurant. And I bring my laptop and I show them the video and I like drive the food down there in a truck. Um, and we show them how to make everything and then we kind of monitor it. We put it on DoorDash and we start getting sales. And so we're like, well, this is pretty sweet. We just bring the food there, get it set up, and then we don't actually actually have to like run the operations. Like, this is kind of and a at bad. this
0: point you have at this point you have a ghost kitchen essentially in a different
1: restaurant, right? Basically, that's what it is. Yeah.
0: Okay. And that's and that's the test. And you list it, and you start to see that sales come through.
1: And so, yeah, and then okay, we um, we raise like eighty k from one of the DoorDash founders because we need to buy this chicken. And also one of the really (laughs) crazy things was we, they had this minimum, like prop chicken gave us this minimum, which was like a million dollars in annual sales in three months. And we just kind of agreed to it because you know, at that point you kind of have to eat shit. Like you don't know if you can sell it, but you're nobody. So you kind of just say, yes, I I was like pretty worried. I thought, man, we're going to have all this extra chicken and we're not going to be able to sell it. Um, but we carry on. We start selling it. And so we thought that was the path. So we're like trying to find other restaurants who want to cook someone else's food because we think we have this great business. All we do is drop food off. They cook it. We hang out and we make money.
0: And this guy, the Singaporean restaurant is going to create a proposition chicken sandwich, proposition chicken, deep fried chicken and salad. And just like it
1: was anything else, like a Singaporean meal. Yeah, and he's going to do it with their okay. specs and we're going to do quality control and make sure it goes well. Okay. And, all and when things. you're
0: saying that you're committed to a million dollars, you're committed to buying the a million dollars worth of it or the uh, enough ingredients from Proposition Chicken to sell, I guess. annualized one, like run run rate. Right. Got it. Okay, so $300,000. $300,000 within that period or else you have to pay them $300,000. Well, not <laughs> yeah. $300, whatever the ingredients the are for $300,000 is what you have to do. Got it. Okay. All right. And by the way, you you mentioned getting $80,000 investment. You have enough money. Why do you need $80,000 from them? Why not
1: put it yourself? I always wondered this like um why do like people who've made yeah. money like raise money? Um I didn't really think about it, honestly. I just I guess it was like a total experiment and it was just kind of what we do and it was easy ish to get. Um, so I haven't really thought about it. It's a good question though. Like if we raise a series B, like, should I invest my money? But the other thing is like, as a founder, like I already own so much of this company, like, mm-hmm. you know, even if I bought a million dollars of our equity, like it would be minuscule in comparison to what I'm like earning each day. So I don't know. I just doesn't, Maybe it just doesn't really make sense.
0: Right. And it doesn't seem like the investors would you have? pair capital, human capital, general catalyst uh, led the round, right? And for this is a 25 million series A. It's not like they need to see that you're more committed than you already are.
1: Yeah. I I think it's more like, let's say like we couldn't raise and we like needed a bridge and I was like super bullish, then I'd be like, all right, I'm just going to put five million into this.
0: Okay. All right. And so you get the money and now you've tested it. It's starting to work. Do you get to the million dollar run rate? Do you, well, do you sell $300,000 worth of chicken? Well, so you
1: back up and we, we start pitching other restaurants on, you know, cooking other people's food. And they basically all say, no, they're like super confused. They're like, get out of my restaurant. <laughs> like it's like going really, really poorly. Um, but then what's really crazy. So Ari, the founder at, um, at prop chicken, he's the curator Of food at Outside Lands, big concert in San Francisco, okay. In Golden Gate Park every year. So he knows all the hottest food. He starts making intros. He says we're legit. You know, he's super amazing. Um, we sign more brands and we're like, okay, we need a kitchen. And so at that point, we start building, you know, a real kitchen and we're pretty all in and we raise like a proper seed of, you know, three million dollars. And um, it's still pretty experimental. Like our first kitchen we built in Lafayette in the East Bay. And it's still very much like, we, we're pretty sure this will work, but you know, you have to keep going. And I think that's what's important in starting companies is you can talk yourself in and out of anything. At some point, like, you just have to do it and see what happens. Otherwise, you'll be like most people and like, you, you just won't do shit.
0: Okay. And so is this the first place that you had? Um, let me see if I could show you by just holding up my iPad. Can you see my iPad well enough to see? Is that the first location? Yeah yeah and this was it looks like it was already a, a restaurant. You just put the local kitchen's name up on it and then in the windows you put the different brands that you were uh, that you were cooking, right? Yeah, it was a cheesesteak shop. Okay. All right. and so you started doing it. what was it? There's glaze in here. I'm trying to see, but it's hard because the picture that I we had our the first our, one is blurry.
1: We had prop chicken and seasig um, mixed. And, you know, we didn't do too much construction because we were still kind of testing it out. So the inside still uh-huh. looked like um, a different restaurant. And then actually like two months in, we paused it and did some construction to like put the sign on there that you see.
0: Okay. And then people were starting to order online and come in person and the thing was working.
1: Yep. And then we built our own website to get some direct ordering and... Um, We got, you know, these enthusiastic reviews. This is amazing. All these kinds of things that were basically signals of product market fit. And so we felt like, okay, you know, let's go. Dude, orange hummus.
0: I never had it until like two years ago. I kept hearing about
1: it. It's freaking legit. It's legit. But it's only in Palo Alto, right? Well, I mean, now it's in Palo Alto, Cupertino, San Jose.
0: So, but, but dude, the thing I'm getting at is, People have been talking about Orange Homes forever. I just randomly was in Palo Alto. I tried and go, this is amazing. Just like everyone says. Why didn't the guy take it over? Why didn't Orange take it over to San Francisco? Why didn't he take it over to Oakland? Why do they need you? Why didn't they do this before?
1: So when they there's so have, much talk
0: about them already.
1: Yeah. They have mm-hmm. a location in the city. But yeah, the general idea is like, why not expand themselves? I mean, there's a definite amount of risk associated with a single brand restaurant. Like, what if you open in orange hummus in you know mill valley and like it just doesn't work like you have this lease you have all these things you have this single brand concept whereas for us then we could just take you out and you didn't lose any money and you you didn't really put too much time into it and um you can test demand it's great uh
0: okay i see so you're also so you're you're bringing brands to the rest of the country less expensively than they could do it themselves. You're reducing the risk that they would have if they had it. You're now uh, piggybacking off of the delivery services that already exist, trying to create a brand name for yourself, and then eventually an experience that people would just want to come in. Just like we, I imagine at some point it might be just like we go to certain food truck locations because we want a different variety of food. We might just come over to local kitchens. That's the future for you. And maybe you have some food that comes in uh just seasonally and goes out maybe you have other locals that are only known through you i saw your eyebrow raise when i said seasonal options
1: right yeah we've kicked that around i think that's awesome i think you could have this idea of a rotating brand maybe one of the 10 slots um is seasonal i think that would be
0: great freaking a i would love for you to bring curry up now here to austin (laughs) orange homes here to austin oh man um so now you're hiring I feel like one of the issues with working for you is first of all, it's gonna be inspiring because you're (laughs) there's something electric about you. But are you expecting that the people who work for you are maniacs like you were in the beginning, where you're sacrificing everything, where you're saying this is the game. We're playing this until we fall down or until we win the
1: game. Yeah. I mean, I, I guess I wouldn't tell someone like how to live their life. Like my job is to set the standards, you know? And I think the standards definitely require a certain amount of sacrifice and commitment. Um, But if you look at the early DoorDash team, there were about eight of us kind of early um, leaders. Basically, all of them have gone on to start companies. And so, you know, my pitch would be, look, come here, build some confidence, some cred, and come here for two or three years. And then, you know, go start your company. They were all like extreme owners, right? We would launch cities, you'd launch Houston with two people, and they would behave basically just like Tony and I, you know, complete maniacs, obsessive. Um, And so, you know, that's kind of the pitch. I I think there's a, um, there's this vibe of, you know, remote work and working a little bit and being on the beach and working everywhere, anywhere you want and all that kind of stuff. I I still think there's a lot of grinders in the country that, you know, want to make something of themselves and work hard and um, are not looking for like little work and like lots of money for doing nothing. So, um, that I mean, that's what we're looking to build, you know.
0: It is exciting to be involved in something that is so all-consuming that you don't want to pull yourself away from it. I've never gotten excited about a video game that people say is addictive. It feels nice and cute, but that's <laughs> the point. But about work that is. By the way, I'm going to be in your city. Do you want to grab a, a beer? Yeah. That sounds great. Why? I thought you would. What's going on?
1: That was a test. I want to see if you've gone lazy or something. I'm not well, going to be I mean, in your city. Su- no, no. I'm sure I can get something from this from this meeting. Oh, and I see. Okay. You're a highly networked individual. <laughs> All right. Good. I was just checking. I, I wanted to see if and, you And obviously, it's it. going to happen at local kitchens. <laughs> <laughs> I'd love to get a beer with you anytime. I can't wait. Are you bringing it to Austin? Yeah. You know, t- tentative plan is, um, a little bit more expansion in California. And then I think next year, um, Texas for sure. You know, te- Texas is like becoming one of the most business friendly States there is yeah. for a number of reasons. So it's just, and then California is kind of like the opposite. Right. So, um, I'm pretty excited for that.
0: You know, one of the reasons why I'm frustrated living here, I love it, but, um, it's kind of like when I was living in DC and talking to, um, uh, what's his name? Uh, Justin Kahn, yeah. about his company. I go, can you bring it over here? And no, he says, I've got to stay here in the Bay Area because that's where we are, and I get it, and I feel like you miss out on a lot of innovation when you don't live in the Bay Area. You forget how, I think people don't realize how much innovation smacks you in the face when you're in the Bay Area. You just go to a restaurant and they've got some random new way to pay through a QR code when other people don't realize what a QR code is. I'm sure that there are people buying things in random ways, creating. It's just so exciting that you could rent some, I guess there was a period there where you could rent somebody's uh, skateboard online, but it was only available in San Francisco. And I'd love that I get to try that. Yeah. All right, dude, I'm excited that I got to meet you. I'm looking forward to coming back to, I guess it'll be when I go back to San Francisco and getting into a local kitchen. Um, and I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing how local kitchens does as it grows.
1: Sweet. Thanks for having me on, Andrew. I appreciate it. This is super fun. I also, Thanks. I would propose for you, I don't know if you've done this. Um, have you ever flipped it and had somebody interview you? I was reading your bio about your journey and all this yes. kind of stuff.
0: I would do it if you want to ask me anything. If you want to come back and do another session, see what the response is. I like what one of your questions was, which was uh, how many downloads like, yeah, yeah, yeah. we're going to hang out, but do people Andrew, think we're cool I'm or fan, not? Yeah. Let's find out what the response is. I would love to see what that is. And yes, I'm up for doing it with you. And if there's somebody else out there in the audience, who ever wants to do an AMA, let me know. Sweet. Um, but, but Andrew, thank you for being on here and I'm looking forward to having a drink. Thanks. See ya. You bet.